Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the roughly 620 mostly anonymous American billionaires. Hey, Chad. Hey, Joe. How's it going? Welcome back, everybody. Uh, it's been a little while, but um, we are back with another episode. Yeah, so we didn't really come clean on this in the last episode, which was season two, episode one. But really, the way that things are going in our lives, we're going to be putting out episodes only once a month for the foreseeable future. We wish we could do more. But life is really busy, right? It's true. Maybe in the summer we'll uh, we'll do some uh, bonus episodes or something. But uh, yeah, for right now, once a month, uh, that's that's all we can do. We work we work so hard for you, uh, listening audience. We're trying to find the time. This episode has been time consuming to prepare for reasons that we'll describe. But it's but it's been fun. It, I think there's going to be some good things to talk about. I think this is going to be a good one, even though somebody was asking me about this uh, just yesterday. And uh, I was I was saying that I think that it's a lot more fun to do the episodes whenever the uh, billionaire is like completely anonymous. And because uh, uh, it feels like uh, we're, you know, we're performing a public service in the sense that like, uh, <laughs> you know, like we're, right. uh, we're just like putting out another document about this person uh, who has very few very little documentation of them existing in the world. That's so, exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I feel like the work is somehow more important when we come across someone who no one's ever heard of. But today's the first time we've done an episode where we have two really big billionaires. Yeah. But I think it's going to be great. I actually, I think I actually had a lot of fun uh, doing the research. And, and it, it's um, a totally different process yeah. when you're dealing with a major person. Right. Because usually there's nothing. And you think and you're trying to think, OK, what kind of angle can I produce out of this to talk about this person about whom there is very little information? Uh, but uh, when you when there's a ton of information about a person, you, you're kind of whittling things down in a different way, uh, like trying to find something to talk about that is not completely obvious to everybody listening. Um, I think I did that for. um Travis Kalanick. Uh, I'm not sure that I did that for my guy, but uh, I will hopefully have some interesting things to say. Uh, so before we get into talking about Travis Kalanick and uh, S- Steve Wynn, that's who you got, right? Yeah, I got Steve uh, Wynn. Steve Wynn. Yeah. Uh, let's yeah. do the news like we always do. Billionaires in the news. All right, Chad. So, you know, I, we should just say that you you bear a lot of the heavy lifting for In the News. Sometimes I contribute little segments, but this week you've done it all. And I have no idea really what we're dealing with. So That's true. What I have actually you prepared didn't even, for us? I didn't even realize it until this moment, but we didn't have any sort of uh, pre-show um, uh, breakdown of what we're going to be talking about in the news. So this is all going to be a surprise to you. That's so exciting. Um. So what do you uh, what do you think that I prepared for us to talk? I about? think I think that you've prepared something to do with probably like Bernie and Bloomberg, given that S- Super Tuesday is this week. 
Oh, we shouldn't talk about this shit because it's going to come out after Super Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But, you know, that's just like the world of podcasting. Uh, uh, That that happens all the time. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's the the billionaire that has been in the news the most is obviously uh, Michael Bloomberg. Uh, So we can talk about his performance at the debate that just happened. That was probably the most newsworthy thing. The, The second debate. Well, I mean, either one. Um, I mean, he did better in the second than he did in the first, but not a lot better. Yeah. Right? How do you how do you feel? I mean, I have, I, I know that you are uh, 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 the uh, in case it's unclear to listeners, uh, Zero Sum Empire does not uh, support the Bloomberg candidacy for president. Uh, <laughs> but like, <laughs> I, I'm interested in sort of like your sort of like detached assessment of him. Uh, as a speaker, he's generally unlikable. Yeah, he s- presents as not very in touch with anybody. I mean, I don't even know who he's in touch with in the super elite billionaire class that he's a part of. He seems like awkward in his own clothes. <laughs> he seems. <laughs> Like not at someone that I would want to spend time with or work for. Those are all superficial impressions I have yeah. of Bloomberg. All right. I mean, I hadn't really thought about that before, but that is a good point. Like uh, Bloomberg is definitely losing the candidate you want to have a beer with vote. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he definitely like, is. Damn. Yeah. Would you rather sit down and have lunch with Mayor Pete or Mayor Bloomberg? Which of the mayors? Mayor Pete. Whoa, really? Yeah. I I mean, it's a it's not an easy question for me, but I think I'd probably end up in the same place. Uh, Should we date ourselves like precisely like within the last hour, Mayor Pete has withdrawn from the race. That's true. That happened just before we started recording. Um, and that's awesome. You're not going to hear this for a few days, but that happened and Super Tuesday is about to happen. By, it's by just the a t- weird time. <laughs> by the time you hear this, your entire mental universe that is entirely occupied by electro- <laughs> electoral politics in America is going to have been reconfigured. And so like Mayor it's Pete true. dropping out of the race will seem like it happened three years ago to you. I know. Uh, We're already voices echoing from the past. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I, I, I had a thought about Bloomberg at the debate. Like, um, it reminded me, there's this Stephen King story from like the 1970s that's called the, the jaunt, uh, okay. that it, it's about, um, instant teleportation, sort of like beaming on Star Trek. Jaunt? The J- J-A-U-N-T. Uh, yeah, and that's cool. That's what the teleportation device is called. It's called the jaunt. And it's replaced all other forms of transportation and like in this short story, people like go to the moon and like Mars and other planets because you can travel there instantaneously. And it's like this whole, you know, he doesn't even, it's a very short story. And so like the, the entire thing takes place in the equivalent of an airport for the jaunt. And, um, and the reason that they have these like places is because when you go through the jaunt, the teleportation machine, you have to be asleep because mm-hmm. like although your body travels through it instantaneously if you if your consciousness is awake when you go through it then it feels like it takes a literal eternity right like so um so time 
I don't know. You know, and he doesn't really explain it. But like, <laughs> so, is it, so it's your point that Bloomberg is in the genre. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I don't think Bloomberg is. So like uh, in the story, a kid like the, the, it all takes place in this airport and this kid holds his breath um, when they give him like they give people the knockout gas so that they can be unconscious when they go through the jaunt. Yeah. <laughs> and this kid holds his breath. So that he goes through a wake and when he comes out the other side, he's still like a little boy, like size, but his hair is gray and he has gone completely insane from spending eternity alone floating in like this empty black purgatory <laughs> of uh, <laughs> of nothingness. And all he can and do that's Bloomberg. when he gets out, <laughs> when he gets out of the other side of the jaunt, because like he does emerge on the other side. Uh, uh, he's completely insane, and all he can do is like over and over scream, uh, "Longer than you think, longer than you think," and that's what it feels like listening to Bloomberg answer a question in a debate <laughs> to me. Like it, like it feels like you're going that's through the shot when you're conscious, because every time he says anything, it's like it was so bananas. Like, like so. I mean, the big sort of like drama was Elizabeth Warren, and she was like. You know, what about like the 80 women that you have non-disclosure agreements with because you've like harassed them or discriminated against them or whatever? And like and this like screaming at she's like two feet away from him screaming at him. Right. Like and and, and like, you know, the last time this happened to Bloomberg, he was probably like eight years old. Right. Like how how often do people in his physical proximity actually criticize him? Is uh, Right. Like, yeah. It had to be weird. Got to be a rare event. And and then like and she finishes saying that and and then his response is like, "Hello, my name is Michael <laughs> Bloomberg. I was the mayor of America's largest city for three terms. And, like, I mean, it just just like ignores the question and <laughs> recites the first thing that comes into his mind, which is like how you introduce yourself, and then it goes on forever. <laughs> it's just interminable. I watched the debate, and every time he spoke, I felt like I was just floating in a void. Uh, outside of time that's, that's yeah <laughs> that's pretty good yeah. that's pretty good um did you know that his daughter writes romance novels you did well you did send me that that yeah text which is absolutely bananas to me she writes like about like horse <laughs> yeah. culture young, equestrian it, culture young adult romance novels set in the high stakes world of competitive equestrian uh, <laughs> jumping. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's dialed. That's got got the finger on the pulse of American youth culture right now. Yeah. Did you watch uh, Thirty Rock? Did you ever watch that show? I mean, I've seen some episodes, but I didn't, you know, follow. Uh, there's this like, there's this one character I think in like a later season, and she plays um, a woman with hollow bones, and. Uh, like she's very like petite and bird like, right? And so the joke is that she has hollow bones, and they break. Okay. Uh, this woman actually does have <laughs> hollow bones, and she uh, Bloomberg's daughter. Yeah, she has some sort of like hollow bone disorder, and she breaks her back all the time. But she makes her hobby horse jumping, which is like the main way. If you break your back in on Earth as a human being. One of the top 10 ways is falling off of a horse, right? Like that everyone knows. Well, historically, probably. <laughs> yeah, right? Like that's a terrible thing. Anyway, she's broken her back two times. 
Uh, she's like best friends with Ivanka Trump and the rest of the Trump what? children. Yeah. Oh, They're like God. best friends and they hang out all the time. You're kidding. Uh, speaking of Trump, moving on to story number two. Uh, Trump pardoned Michael Milken, friend of the show, uh, uh, an oft-invoked uh, uh, figure uh, on our show. Um, do you remember anything about Michael Milken? Oh, I mean, I remember, you know, all the things, but he's going to, I don't know if he'll come up in my segment, but oh, he did come really? up in my, he did come up on, in my research because uh, Steve Wynn was the guy who basically introduced Wall Street junk bond capital to Vegas. Oh, wow. And so him and Milken go way back. Yeah. I mean, you know, fans of the show uh, will will remember Michael Milken uh, as the junk bond king. Uh, um, He sort of like, you know, I don't want to, well, we don't need to go back into it. Right. Uh, But like Michael, he sort of like sits at the middle of the clusterfuck that is the global economy. Like uh, everything that's wrong from uh, like trading risky securities that cause a financial collapse to private equity. It's like Michael Milken invented all of that stuff. You know, he's this very central figure. Um, But I mean, if you read what he, how people describe him in economic circles, it's just like he created a very smart product. Yeah. He figured out how, to offer risky investments and rate that risk for people who wanted to take that on. You know, it's just yeah. interesting the the different frameworks that people will use to describe what's happening. Well, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's true. And, and I mean, and still a lot of people, and this is exactly why he got pardoned, right? Is because all of uh, Trump's friends uh, are big Michael Milken fans because he was the person who was the kind of, um, tactical architect, right? Of of every way that they make money, right? Like he figured out the moves that you do. He made right? a lot of those guys very rich, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, there was, I mean, there after the pardon happened. I mean, there was a uh, one of the prosecutors of Michael Milken. I mean, I you know, he went to jail for a couple of years. He had to pay about six hundred million dollars in fines. Uh, this happened in the late eighties. You know, he was a criminal. He 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 is a criminal, and uh, uh, and sort of paved the way for a lot of other criminal activity. I but, mean, he just did you know insider trading, securities fraud. He he did all of those things. Yeah. And was found guilty of them. Yes. I, I wanted to read a quick quote from a Washington Post uh, editorial uh, that was written by one of the prosecutors of Michael Milken uh, back in the 80s on the occasion of his being pardoned by Trump. Uh, he wrote, uh, quote, what outrages me is the process that brought uh, the pardon. In as guileless an admission as I have ever seen of rich man's justice, the White House bolstered its decision by listing a murderer's row of Republican donors and billionaires who provided widespread and longstanding support for Milken's pardon. (laughs) Sheldon Adelson, Tom Barrick, Rudy Giuliani, and others are listed as supporters of the pardon. If I had to prove that the scales of justice tilt toward the rich, I would offer that list and then sit down and wait for the jury to convict. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's 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 an extremely I, I people are upset about Rod Blagojevich because uh, he was pardoned and he just sort of like very clearly committed a crime that people can sort of understand. 
Whereas like Michael Milken is a much more evil character, uh, just a, you know, a, a sort of Batman villain kind of character. And <laughs> well, I mean, like, I think we can we can certainly say that his reach was far more expansive than Blagojevich's. Yeah. Blagojevich is a sort of irrelevant clown figure in American history, whereas Michael yeah. Milken is actually an, an, an important sort of turning point in the demise of American empire. Okay. Any, are there any other news items? Um, I mean, to we got to cover this. I know the news has been going on for a while, but we got to cover this story. Uh, the last one is a callback to something that we talked about in an earlier episode, and we got to address it again, which is the business roundtable. Uh, if you remember them back, I think this is probably like around episode 10. Uh, they're a group of uh, high powered CEOs who periodically meet to talk about like capitalism's future. And they like draw up strategic plans for how capitalism should work. And uh, if you remember, the reason that we covered it is because they made headlines uh, last year when they uh, dropped their long-standing principle that only shareholders should benefit from a company's actions. Um, it was a major sort of like, oh my God, corporations are becoming socially conscious or something. Right. And we were I like- remember this. Yeah. And we were like, of course, this is uh, definitely fake. And um, what they were arguing for was the, what they called stakeholder capitalism. Uh, which would be a kind of capitalism that considered the welfare of workers and communities and the environment and stuff like that. So what happened since then is that like dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of corporations signed on to the business roundtable pledge. And then they were like, yes, let's be socially conscious capitalism. And they nobody did anything. Uh, so a bunch of activists started a campaign to force companies to explain how they were going to actually incorporate the pledge that they signed into their business practices. And, um, and so they filed proposals, uh, shareholder proposals, which is like a resolution that you send to a meeting where the, the, um, you know, the, the board has to like meet and, and consider this proposal. Um, mm -hmm. that, and, and the effect of that is that it would force the corporate board to debate on how they're actually going to integrate the principles of the business roundtable statement that they signed. Um, every single corporation was like, absolutely not. We will not even accept uh, the suggestion that we would ever need to talk about uh, doing anything that did not primarily uh, promote shareholder value in, in this company. And so they, they, they all filed lawsuits with the SEC uh, to say, we are not going to do this. We are not going to talk about how we're going to be, you know, stakeholder capitalists. Um, and in that's just thoroughly unsurprising. It's thoroughly unsurprising. In most cases, they lost in in like 90 percent of the cases they lost because there's this provision where. So the activists were all shareholders in the company to 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 file a petition like that or a proposal like that. You actually have to own shares in the company. So they were either p activists who owned shares or they were like pension funds or people who were like filing on behalf of an activist movement. Mm -hmm. And uh, they and and most of the time the SEC sided with the corporations and we're like, no, you don't have to do this because what this is, is a minority shareholder trying to micromanage the daily operations of the company. And that's actually forbidden by, you know, federal law. 
However, in a small number of cases, and, and it includes companies like Goldman Sachs, BlackRock, and Citigroup, and I, I think also McDonald's, their petition to the SEC was denied, uh, which means that the activists won. And so these corporations at their like um, at their board meetings are are going to have to discuss how they're actually going to implement uh, this stakeholder capitalist model into their business practices. And if they're not, then they will have to say that right in a in a way that can be reported to the public. Uh, so that might be incredibly embarrassing for them, and it might be hmm. hilarious. That's kind uh, of interesting. Yeah, it's a it's a very very cool sort of. Uh, activist project um they got a lot of like state pension funds and stuff to back them and and file these proposals and yeah it was really cool um so yeah that's the news all right uh time to cover some billionaires uh joe that's right you're going first today. Um, we are covering Las Vegas mm, casino mogul, Steve Wynn. That's correct. And so those of you who listened to the bitter end of our last episode might remember that both of us seemed completely unaware of who Steve Wynn was when we pulled him off the random billionaire selector. Yeah. I mean, I know I know who he is. I'm kind of embarrassed that I uh, didn't. I I was uh, yeah. I was all uh, I was sort of loopy by the end of the episode last time. I think. Yeah, you had an experiment using grain alcohol, which is not something that I you tried to make do. homemade white claws with grain alcohol and lemon juice, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and had the desired effect. Do not try but, this at home. Yeah, it's not very good. No, I mean it took me about. 0.5 seconds to realize that I also know who he, he is. I just didn't, you know, the episodes get long, you're tired, and I didn't recognize the name. I recognized the face yeah. as soon as I Googled him <laughs> and the news stories. You don't forget that so face. Win is a, <laughs> you don't forget the face. Wynn is a big time Las Vegas real estate mogul and former finance chair of the Republican National Committee, who was famously accused by dozens of people for sexual misconduct. And this story broke in a big way back in late January of 2018 when the Wall Street Journal published its investigation into these allegations. I'm sure most of our listeners will remember it. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't recognize the name, you do. He was a he was a major sort of figure in uh, this was like really at the apex of of Me Too. And he was a, a pretty a pretty high profile, probably top top ten high profile. Uh, me me tooed rich guys. Yeah, it was a scandal of life skewering proportions. Late today, a scandal erupting in Las Vegas. The Wall Street Journal reporting casino mogul Steve Wynn, one of the most powerful men in that city and a powerful player in politics in this country, accused of sexual misconduct. Here's ABC's Kana Whitworth now. The Wall Street Journal reporting that dozens of sources described a pattern of sexual misconduct by Wynn, including pressuring employees to perform sex acts. Wynn also serves as finance chairman of the Republican National Committee. President Trump has called him a good friend. Steve Wynn, would you stand up? He's raising so much money for our great Republican Party. So clearly this is all very bad. As one NPR article put it, after sexual misconduct claims, Vegas mogul Steve Wynn fell fast. <laughs> <laughs> 
within days of the allegation surfacing, Wynn had resigned his finance chair position with the RNC. The gaming board launched an investigation into his conduct. And get this, the University of Pennsylvania rescinded an honorary degree they'd awarded him back in <laughs> 2006. For, for what? <laughs> uh, is there ever a reason? I mean, isn't that what, doesn't honorary just mean? Yeah, I guess so. You didn't do anything. You're, you know, you gave a speech or you happen to be rich or you gave us some money. Yeah. I wonder if, it, yeah, I wonder if it was Wharton business school. Pro- probably. Well, at the same time, UPenn also revoked an honorary degree they'd given to Bill Cosby. In oh. 1990. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like they're uh, cleaning house. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what they were doing. They were like, we need to make some changes with this honorary degree system. Yeah. <laughs> um, they hadn't actually rescinded any honorary degrees for a hundred years. So oh, wow. it was a bit it was a big moment yeah. for the University of Pennsylvania. You imagine there's Probably some uh, nefarious characters uh, who've gotten honorary degrees from <laughs> the various Ivy Leagues over the past hundred years. Milken probably has several. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, at this point, right? Like now he's Mr. Philanthropy. He probably has like a desk drawer full, full of them. <laughs> Wynn has vocally denied all of these allegations, but he was still forced to resign as CEO and chairman of the Wynn Corporation, mm-hmm. the company he founded. And he's been adamant that his ex-wife just made other people accuse him of these things to support her divorce settlement case. Mm. So crazy him. that all of these incredibly rich sex creeps have all of these like people doing conspiracies against them. <laughs> you know? Yeah. What an unfortunate coincidence. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Yeah. It is. It's tough. Yeah. It's it's tough to be them. It's just I mean, people coming know. at you from all sides when you're rich. They're targets, man. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So there are several weird pieces of trivia related to when that may be interesting for you and our listeners to learn about. His daughter was the victim of a high-profile kidnapping back in the early 90s. Hmm. When wound up paying the kidnappers a cash ransom right out of the movies, a million bucks. <laughs> and, and the main ki- kidnapper was a guy named Ray Cuddy, which is also <laughs> a name out of the movies somehow. Yeah, that's like that's a uh, Coen Brothers movie yeah, name. Yeah. And so he received the cash ransom and proceeded to go on a lavish spending spree before the feds busted him at a <laughs> at a high-end car dealership where he was attempting he was in the act of paying cash for a Ferrari. <laughs> and wow. the cop showed up and Cuddy was sentenced to 19 years in prison. But it was uh That's it was crazy. scary scary situation for the Wynn family. Terry Benedict, Andy Garcia's character in Ocean's 11 mm-hmm. is loosely based on Steve Wynn. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I don't really, I haven't seen that movie in a long time. I don't really remember. He was the guy, well, I guess, obviously, the guy who owned the casino that they robbed. Yeah, but now now that you're sort of talking more about it, it seems like uh, loosely is the operative word. Andy Garcia does not look anything like Steve Wynn. No. (laughs) They have very different faces. Steve Wynn has one of those catcher's mitt faces. (laughs) 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 It's pretty beat up. 
Uh, pretty pretty wide and puffy. Yeah, yeah, they're different. different <laughs> Steve Wynn has dual citizenship in Monaco. For some reason, Prince Albert gave it to him. Well, there is a reason, sort of, that I understand. He didn't meet any of the citizenship requirements, but he appears to have been worked into some massive hotel management scheme that Monaco was working on with Qatar. <laughs> oh, okay. So he came home with some just normal citizenship, normal stuff, <laughs> normal everyday stuff. No reason to look for crimes anywhere around here. <laughs> yeah, it's regular. <laughs> Trump and Wynn have a really weird relationship. Is there anybody that Trump doesn't have a weird relationship? With? I mean, <laughs> I think you can just learn so much about how the world works just by examining his weird social history. You know, there's so many stories that he's embedded in. Yeah. But this particular story really begins, I guess, back in the nineties when they were engaged in like an intense Atlantic city, Vegas rivalry where my, my, my basic sense of it is that Trump always wanted to get in on the Vegas real estate game, but couldn't it was just too difficult to crack mm -hmm. and so that's mostly why he set up shop in atlantic city mm -hmm. so but in any event they they would wind up poaching one another's like top executives at their respective casinos and then sue each other for poaching and then talk <laughs> shit to, to each other the whole time and oh, and then as 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 you might have guessed, after settling this big lawsuit, uh, they wind up becoming fast friends. And Trump attended Wynn's wedding in 2011 and was ultimately the guy who appointed him to the RNC finance chair position. I, I feel like most of uh, Trump's relationships with people are like the business version of two extremely drunk guys in a bar <laughs> who like get into a fist fight, but then end up hugging each other and crying hugging. on the floor. Yeah. And, then, you know, like, yeah. and wanting to make out with each other yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then getting mad at each other when they, again, that's you know. totally right. Wait, what is the, what's the, what's the movie that I just saw that does that? Is it, is it mean streets? It might be oh, I don't know. I was thinking more of a stepbrothers vibe. Clearly, with 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 all these things that I just mentioned, we could we could choose to talk uh, about any number of things with Wen. But given the fact that he's probably most well known for being a gambling mogul, the most famous gambling mogul of our lifetime, probably, I figured. Uh, we might as well spend a little bit of time talking about gambling. Okay. We've talked about that before a little bit. The very first show, we had a Japanese gambling mogul, Kaneo Busajima. Well, officially, Pachinko is not gambling. It's a it's a game <laughs> that you can oh, exchange yeah. at a different for store. Tokens. You can exchange tokens <laughs> for prizes. And it's not gambling. Yeah. Well... I was listening to that episode a little bit before pre pre for preparing for this episode. And I have to say, man, we've come a long way. Like anybody who's come with us from episode one till now, we have to be really, really grateful to them. 
I kind of imagine anybody who listened to those episodes stopped listening. <laughs> we have all new we have all new listeners. There's no crossover. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty that's pretty much right. I mean, do you remember anything about those days? I don't. I don't I I don't like to listen to the sound of my own voice, so I don't really return to them. Um but I do remember the our, our audio quality was not great. Um, no, it wasn't. Our ideas were not great. Our rapport was not great. There was nothing I mean it was not, we, you know, you, 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 you got to start somewhere, I guess. Yeah. And now, um, after, uh, 22 short episodes, there's pretty much nobody better in the game, uh, than us, as far, <laughs> yeah, we're as, far as I can game. tell. I don't listen we're, to podcasts, so I don't know, but I just, I kind of assume that yeah, I, I've done this like 20 several times. So now I'm hundred listens yeah. for each episode. <laughs> now I'm the best. I don't know, man. We're still, we're still coming up. So we didn't wind up doing much with gambling in that first show. I do at one point ask a question about the infrastructural consequences of gambling on the planet, but we don't really go too far into it. Mainly, you wind up talking about why you hate gambling and why you just don't like betting against your friends, how it makes you feel weird. And and that was most of what we did with it. So anyway, I thought we'd give another crack at talking about gambling today. There's so much that we could talk about, and I'm not deeply knowledgeable about anything. But the the fundamental thing that for me is interesting to think about with gambling in America is that the gambling industry has been steadily growing here and in Western countries sort of generally since the 1960s. Mm-hmm. So like gambling was mostly illegal in, in 1910. And today there are only two states that have an outright ban on gambling, Hawaii and Utah. Uh-huh. So we know that the laws are still complicated in, in many places, but we also know obviously that gambling is super commonplace. So one study from the late nineties showed that one and $10 that Americans spend on leisure is spent on commercial games. Uh, I saw a statistic hmm. from 2010 showing that Americans spend three times more on gambling than they do on movie tickets. And in 2017, uh, Americans wow. combined lost almost $117 billion to casinos, lotteries, and gaming sites. Yeah. So when we when we start to appreciate the magnitude of this business and the fact that it's been steadily rising, in fact, has experienced unprecedented growth in recent decades. The obvious question is, why is this happening? I don't know why it's happening. I imagine there's a lot of reasons uh, for the spread of gambling and the, the increase in the per capita spending on gambling. I don't know. Why, why are you bringing it up? What do you want to talk about? Well, I mean, I, I mean, short answer is I don't really know why either. It's very complicated. And obviously there are all these swirling forces at work that contribute to the changing laws and people's spending habits. And I don't claim to have a, a grasp on any of that. It's all out there to study harder. I just haven't studied it. But there, there are some interesting things at a very kind of basic level to think about that I'd like to talk about for a few minutes. All right. It, if, if we start to map this trend of gambling in Western culture onto 
larger economic shifts that we typically associate with late capitalism. So here's a question. Are you familiar with uh, the David Harvey argument that he rolls out in Conditions of Postmodernism, where he basically contends that the 1970s mark a kind of inflection point mm-hmm. in the development of capitalism. Sure. Yeah. Because the this historical moment is where the economy no longer depends so much on productive activity like manufacturing and services. And it's no longer tied up so much to raw minerals or precious metals like gold. Mm-hmm. And this is this is the moment where the economy starts to run on speculation. I'm assuming this is sort of in your wheelhouse. Of, uh, of yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'll put in a plug for David Harvey's podcast. <laughs> I think it's called, I think it's called How Capitalism Works, maybe. This is David Harvey, and you're listening to the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles, a podcast that looks at capitalism through a Marxist lens. This podcast is made possible by Democracy at Work. Last time I ended with the, the key conundrum which I think exists uh, in what I would call the long durée. Uh, uh, and this conundrum is that the continuity of human life uh, is threatened by the means required to procure endless capital accumulation. And that if we consider the continuity of human life to be more important than the continuity of endless capital accumulation, then we need to start to think about ways to totally restructure uh, our economic life and to create an alternative economic model which satisfies human wants and needs at the same time as it doesn't threaten the continuity of human life. The idea is that you know, here in the 1970s, the economy is moving away from tangible products and toward abstraction, a a move away from real hard assets and toward a system of arbitrary signs, which have an increasingly tenuous relationship with the material world. Right. So while this is obviously the mindset that, that fuels what people now call casino capitalism and you know the the, the sort of investor mindset right. that leads to the, the speculation the financialization of everything right like right. that that derivatives uh, and yeah. what have you so everything becomes um a sort of speculative investment and a hedge right. and you know this is also i mean and obviously the term casino capitalism suggests this a sort of mindset that we associate with gamblers so i, I give me a moment to just unwind a few more ideas. There's a book called The Age of Chance, Gambling in Western Culture, that I didn't have time to read very much of before this episode, (laughs) (laughs) but which looks interesting. And I skimmed some parts of it. Uh, And maybe someday I will read it uh, when I don't do all of the other things that I do with my life. (laughs) But anyway, at one point, it points out that both Baudrillard and Benjamin, who both write about gambling at different points, observe that the logic of gambling denies the relation of cause and effect. So like when you gamble, you abstract yourself from the realm of labor and the fruits of production. 
for for Baudrillard, gambling is all about this idea of seduction. What does that What does that mean? Like, uh, are we being seduced by casinos, or uh, like who's seducing who? I think that we're seduced into imagining a possible relationship to money that is not immediately tied to labor. I guess the way that I'm thinking of it is we could be sort of like lifted out of our normal relationship to labor and money and capital and and we can for a time enter into a sphere where those relations are no longer uh, oppressive to us or right. or we are no longer alienated from our labor under those conditions. So it's this kind of fantasy world that one can step into right. where yes. all of those cause and effect relationships uh, that are um, suspended momentarily. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a good word. Suspended momentarily. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. So that's exactly right. But so that's the seduction part. Okay. And that's, and that's what Baudrillard is talking about. But it also seems obvious to me that gambling involves a lot of desperation. And my thought here is it may be possible to explain like all acts of gambling on some sort of grid of intelligibility that has seduction on one axis and desperation on the other. I mean, I don't know where seduction and uh, desperation get <laughs> are different from one another. <laughs> well... That maybe it's just one axis <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. with uh, two poles. <laughs> but I like mean, the more desperate you get, the easier you are to seduce, right? Like, right. But doesn't it make sense that late capitalism largely functions according to a similar logic of desperation and seduction? You know, I mean, sure. like, like why do we buy anything? You know, either because we're desperate and we just need it to survive. Or because we're seduced into believing somehow it's worth it. Right. I mean, to, to put it very simply, uh, capitalism makes you feel miserable and then tells you that there's a bunch of products that you can buy that'll make you not feel miserable uh, so that you buy them and uh, then you just continue to feel miserable. Right? And there's always this like promise out uh, held out, right? That uh, the, next, you know, the next thing that you buy, uh, you won't feel miserable. Um, but the conditions that are making you miserable are, of course, the ones under which you continue uh, to but buy I, these things. I guess right? what I guess I guess what I'm saying is what you're also describing is the person who keeps on putting more chips on the table at the casino. Yeah, absolutely. Just pumping those coins, pumping the the, the tokens into the pachinko machine over and over again. <laughs> um, I mean, it's. I mean, that's. I think that's it, right? Like that. In in some ways, like gambling is just the kind of purest distillation. Or the 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 ideal form of capitalism, right? Where right. there's just yeah. a, a continuous circuit feeding through your body and a machine, right? right. Of, of capital or, or of money, uh, and it eliminates all the middlemen. <laughs> right, right. Like, yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, yeah, I mean, this is I, this is kind of interesting to to the house always wins, right? Like, the, how different is that idea from the idea of surplus value? Right. Like that it's that surplus value is the part that is skimmed off the top from your labor. Right. And and uh, the the fact that the house always wins is the five percent that is skimmed off the statistical aggregate of all people gambling. Right. Right. Um, and. Uh, and so, like, <laughs> I don't know, like, I don't know what what's seductive about that. I mean, I, I like I, I feel like 
maybe if we have more time, we could work our way. It's that's it. not the seductive part. People aren't thinking about the five percent that's being sucked off the top. People are thinking about another w- w- mode of experience that is not related to that, which is a fantasy and a lie. Yeah, you know, like so much of what so many of the messages that we receive in a mass marketed to consumer culture. It's like a, it's like a fantasy zone that you can enter and reclaim the surplus value that has been stolen from you in your labor. Right. I, I got, yeah. Now I get, now I got so, a chance to win. Right. Yeah. Uh, Cause you don't yeah. have a chance to win in real life. Right. Like you don't, you can't hit the lottery or hit the jackpot at your job. Right. Like uh, that, that doesn't, Makes sense, right? So that that the house is always and consistently winning, right? But but right. gambling structures it such that you might escape a winner. Most people are going to lose, and on on in the statistical aggregate, like the house is still uh, collecting that uh, its portion, right? But you might escape uh, the the punishment. We still have to raid Steve Wynn. Yeah, I mean. Super rich, head of the RNC, uh, sex creep. I mean, it's got to be finance chair, finance chair. Oh, what, oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, whatever. Like, it's got to be pretty, pretty up there. I think. Eight. Yeah. 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 Eight. Right. I, I mean, I'm, I'm good with that. They're, I don't know. Some people ex- think that we're. Uh, I'm getting some feedback. I'm not going to call anybody out over the airwaves, but I've been getting some feedback that people aren't on board with all of our ratings. Well, Maybe we need uh, to be more careful about uh, well, it. Well, if any of those people are listening now, uh, you can go start your own fucking podcast. This is ours, <laughs> and we're going to rate these assholes how we want to. So, you know. Yeah, that's right. Eight. <laughs> Eight. Uh, Kalanick is a weird billionaire to cover because most of the billionaires on the list that we cover are base are more or less anonymous to people, and we're kind of introducing them. Uh, Kalanick is somebody that is known to most people because he was the subject of a lot of gossip. I still remember the moment I heard of Uber for the first time. <laughs> Isn't that weird? I also remember the moment that I heard of YouTube for the first time. Whoa! When? What ha- under in what context did you hear of YouTube for the first time? Two thousand and six, r- driving from home from work, on the radio, listening to NPR, and they were like, "There's a new thing in town called YouTube." <laughs> Whoa, dude! <laughs> you heard about YouTube from NPR? Are you one hundred years old? <laughs> I mean, YouTube was like one year old at that time. I mean, it's just very odd that that would be the conduit through which you heard about. YouTube how did you? First- how did you find out about you? I don't know. Probably through some cool shit, uh, <laughs> not through goddamn NPR. So anyway, like what I what I what I want to do today uh, is to not go over the various scandals that tr- that Travis Kalanick was involved in. I I more want to try to get inside of his mind. How does one do that? Well, okay. What's the, what so- mechanism? Uh, through reading various profiles of Travis Kalanick. And in fact, there's an entire book, uh, written by a journalist named Mike Isaac that I'm going to be drawing on heavily today. It's, it's called Super Pumped, The Rise and Fall of Uber. 
Uh, it's a great book. Uh, it it was. It, I, I mean, I was I, I was actually like laughing. I was I was uh, literally LOLing uh, while I was reading the book. It's 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 extremely funny to read. Um, great. Well, let's bring it to life for the listeners and I. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll I will bring it to life for you right now. Um, <laughs> cool. Okay, so I I think that the way to think about Travis Kalanick is he remind like he's very much a Donald Trump Jr. figure to me. He uh he gives off Donald Trump Jr. vibes in the sense that his main characteristic is that he has identified uh very specific hero figures that he he kind of notices their their superficial habits like their the ways that they talk and the ways that they act and the, and the kind of ideas that they have and he mimics these okay. in the way that like Donald Trump Jr kind of like mimics the type of masculinity that his father that he imagines his father expects him to have. Yeah. You know what, you yeah. Know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so like, that's, that's the, that's the kind of vibe that you, um, like the first thing you read about Travis Kalanick is uh, that, that, that is the, the basic sort of insight that every journalist has about him is that he worships Silicon Valley founders, especially Jeff Bezos and, uh, um, you know, the Google guys or whatever. And, uh, and he sure. is, he's just trying to kind of model himself off this kind of perverse image of what he thinks, uh, they are. So I think that like, that's a sort of like basic, uh, take on him, uh, uh that I have. Uh, but before I like, uh, before I, you know, kind of unpack that anymore, um, I will just very briefly go over the Travis Kalanick background. Yeah, I want to know um, about it because I, I don't know yeah. about it. Okay. I, I, I wrote a bullet-pointed list here, and so I'm just going to read through this very brief bullet-pointed list. Okay. Um, so, like, the number of things happened, like, over the last few years. And, and How and, old is he? Uh, I think he is 45 years old, if I'm not mistaken. He, he's mid-40s. So, uh, you know, Uber was, uh, like somewhat controversial since its founding in the sense like that it, that it went into cities and kind of challenged the, the taxi cab industries and that sort of thing. But like the Travis Kalanick being the bad boy CEO thing didn't happen until much later. And, uh, here's the bullet pointed list. There were accusations that Uber was a hostile work environment for women. There are accusations that Kalanick was a huge douchebag, which is not my word. It's how he was consistently described in the press for like uh, the entire period during which he was famous. Mm -hmm. uh, he was enabling and participating in creating the hostile work environment. Like it, he was top of the totem pole from which those attitudes uh, descended. There was leaked video of him yelling at an Uber driver. And then there was the hashtag delete Uber campaign that uh, was all over social media and led to a lot of people deleting the Uber app. And then Kalanick was eventually booted out of the company. Um, they, they wanted to get rid of him as a CEO. And when was that? Uh, that was just last year, I believe. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when it happened. It's just you lose track of time. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't too long ago. Um, so like that's the whole trajectory in a nutshell. It's like people sort of like recognized him as a toxic CEO from pretty much the get go, and then it was kind of one misstep after the other until he eventually was removed from you know from being the head of the company. So so he's he's not has nothing to do with Uber now, but just has a bunch of money and is doing other shit. Basically, and 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 uh, what he's doing is sort of like what he started out doing, and that's what I want to uh, you know uh, talk about now is that like he had um, the way he got started is he had like an early success with a um, I don't know some sort of, like file sharing type of app called Red Swoosh uh, that ended up getting sued for like a hundred billion dollars or something. He sold it for twenty million dollars and the lawsuit disintegrated. Um and then he took that twenty million dollars and became a like a venture capital startup incubator guy, uh very much like TJ Miller's character in Silicon Valley. Hmm. But he did not call himself uh, a venture capitalist, he called himself something else. And so this is where I want to go to Mike Isaac's book, uh, Super Pumped, to uh, to reveal how uh, Travis Kalanick thought of himself. Uh, so, uh, quote, my people think of me as a funding shepherd, uh, <laughs> Kalanick once said to a room full of young engineers at Startup Mixology, what? a regular boozy event for techies in their 20s. On stage, Kalanick clicked a remote control as a slide behind him flicked into view. Behind him was Jesus Christ, robed, hooded, and holding a shepherd's cane. What? Quote, I'm really freaking curious, he noted, <laughs> hitting the clicker again to showcase a fluffy cat, biting and batting around <laughs> a toy. Just think of me as the wolf. Uh, the wolf is capitalized in that passage because he's referring to uh, Harvey Keitel's character from Pulp Fiction. Oh, okay. <laughs> because right. yeah, he, the guy just takes care of business. Yeah, that was one of his like idols. Uh, he I, he wanted to be Harvey Keitel from Pulp Fiction. Okay, so continuing, this is again like a, like during the period during which uh, he was a funding shepherd. Uh, he had a. Uh, a dojo, I guess you would say, uh, that he called the Jam Pad. Um, the Jam Pad was, quote, a million dollar apartment at the top of the Castro that functioned like its own personal salon, an informal symposium where technologists could relax, sink into the couch, and talk about the future over beers and a platter of grilled T bone steaks. What? Uh, this is that's not even the good part. The good part. Kalanick hoped for people to call him by the nickname T Bone, securing the Twitter account at Kona T Bone, where he would post his quote musings and often controversial aphorisms. Oh my God. That was his Twitter bio. <laughs> <laughs> at Kona T-Bone. <laughs> yeah, so that's amazing. Um, 
But he also he he also had a personal account. So that was his funding shepherd account where he was like the business guru. And then he also had a personal account the at Travis Kalanick. And um his avatar for that account was the cover of Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. Yeah. Very Don Jr. vibes that you get. Uh so Uber was one of the companies that he was running when he was a funding shepherd in his incubator. And and during the early days of Uber, it was very exciting. The company grew very large, very quickly. And uh, Travis Kalanick, being the very cool and awesome boss uh, that he is, when they hit revenue milestones, he would take the the employees on vacations. And um, the biggest... The biggest one that he did was in 2015, he took the team to Las Vegas for a, quote, highly branded party. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how many listeners have uh, been to cool parties, but uh, I, I, let me tell you, uh, uh, the way to recognize if you are at a cool party is if is, it is highly branded uh, consistently <laughs> across media platforms. God, it's amazing. You're you're making me realize that I don't think I've ever been to a cool party. <laughs> um, anyway, the brand of this party was X to the X, which meant ten to the tenth power, and it was celebrating Uber reaching a ten billion dollars in gross revenue. So the X to the power X party uh, culminated. In a performance by Beyonce, who Travis Kalanick got to perform by paying her $6 million in uh, in restricted stock, which meant other people couldn't buy it. And that increased a lot. And so here's a, a, a quote from uh, Mike Isaac's article or, or Mike Isaac's uh, book uh, about this uh, quote. The night exploded with employees dancing and singing along to a string of number one hits. The crowd hushed for a haunting acoustic rendition of Drunken Love, <laughs> a standby. Up in the rows of seats facing the stage sat Beyonce's husband, Jay-Z, smoking a cigar and smiling. I fucking love you all! All of you! Kalanick yelled into a microphone holding Beyonce's hand, clearly drunk. <laughs> And Jay-Z is up in the balconies being like, I think we just made like a quarter of a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, so at that same party, he put on another show only for management. But this one uh, was a little bit less entertaining. He had his employees go to a 7,000 seat theater in Planet Hollywood and made them sit through a three-hour presentation that he delivered about his business philosophy. And this is basically what I want to talk about for the rest of the time. And this is getting inside of Travis Kalanick's mind. Um, three-hour three hour uh, talk? Will, That's uh, a long read, talk. Yeah, a long talk. I will read one more quote from Mike Isaac that uh, that that puts this in a, in a very enchanting uh, sort of way. Quote, as the lights dimmed, a pair of silhouettes wheeled a large rickety chalkboard under the stage, green slate framed with wood, as if they had robbed a high school science classroom. Onto the stage walked Kalanick, 
clad in a stark white lab coat and thick-rimmed black glasses. He became Professor Kalanick for the better part of the next three hours, explaining to his employees his vision for the company. He was introducing what he called his philosophy of work. The result of what he said was hundreds of hours of deliberation and discussion. The entire presentation was born directly from Kalanick's obsession with Amazon, the online retailer led by Jeff Bezos, the founder, uh, a founder every young entrepreneur idolized. Bezos's path to success was the result was the stuff of Kalanick's dreams. Uh, quote: "I want to introduce you to Uber's values," Kalanick said, pointing to the chalkboard on stage. The house lights shone on the chalkboard behind Kalanick. Written in white chalk were 14 bullet points, each a short saying or thought sprung directly from the brain of the CEO. The audience read the list as Kalanick rattled them off aloud. And so, Joe, what I would like to do for the end of You're the gonna show read me the list. is to read you the list and just to kind of gather your your thoughts okay. about okay. Travis Kalanick's business philosophy. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, point one. Always be hustling. <laughs> okay, I I can already see where this is. <laughs> <laughs> oh so he God. takes he takes always be closing from Glengarry Glen, Glen Ross and and makes it hip hop by saying always be hustling. Yeah, he just right. imagines that moment holding Beyonce's hand looking yes. up at Jay-Z yes. in the balcony and and just brings it home as the first point in his philosophy. You saw you you watched uh Succession, right? Did you watch yeah. that? Yeah. It's I a mean, good like, show. This is Kendall Roy, right? Yeah, like the, of course the, it's Kendall Roy. Uh being a being like a financial dude is the same as being an old school hip hop dude. What what is that song that he sings at the end of season two? Uh, what up to the OG? L, L to the OG. Yeah, L to the yeah, OG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so always be hustling. Um, uh, two, be an owner, not renter. So I'm not sure that's an insight. Uh, he's saying that accumulating. I capital. mean, can we? Here's a. I, I think I'm gonna. I've got a good. Uh, I'm just coming up with this, but. Given this is the structure for the end of the show, I think for each one of these bullet points, I think I should be allowed to respond bullshit or basic or both. <laughs> bullshit, basic, or basic bullshit. <laughs> okay. So right. that second one is definitely basic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's that's true. Always be hustling is bullshit. Being owner, not rental, is basic. Yeah. Um, okay. Give me, yeah. give me number three. Okay. Number three. Big bold bets. Ah, that's both. Yeah. <laughs> it's basic okay. bullshit. My thought on this is, uh, uh, here is big bold bets. Basic bullshit is five B's in a row. <laughs> <laughs> this is my impression of myself giving a speech at Travis Kalanick's birthday party. You know, Travis is always talking about big, bold bets, but now it's time to drop those big, bold beats. 
DJ hit it. <laughs> and then I do a and then I do a rap. Damn. That is Damn. That is unbelievably humiliating for uh everybody in a in the nuclear radius. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Okay. Number let's four. Get to the next one. Celebrate cities. Bullshit. I'm moving on. I don't even know. Customer customer obsession. And this one's very boring, but I will say, so this entire list is just taken from Jeff Bezos's 14-point list about his <laughs> business philosophy, and Travis Kalanick just changes the words to be a little bit more hip-hop. But Dude. this this one, he didn't bother to even fucking change the words, because customer obsession is one of Jeff Bezos's points in his I mean, thing. Dude, here's another thing. Like, have you... Have you seen that document, that Netflix documentary about Bikram, the yoga, the yogi? Yeah. You know, it's like the same shit. Like, like he's they, way smarter than Bezos. Fine. Guy, but he just yeah. stole all the moves from his mentor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He literally just stole the moves and was just like, these are my moves. You know? Yeah. I don't know. It just seems like you can, you can. So did Manson, to- which I realized from watching that documentary recently, is that that Manson lived with like a cult for a little while and just sort of like took the ideas of the cult leader. And that was the basis for Helter Skelter. It's just amazing how far you can get just biting shit deliberately. Yeah. Anyway. anyway. Number six, Inside Out. Do you ever think of that, Joe? Inside Out? I don't even, do we need a third category? That's that's bullshit to me. That one, like, it's just nonsense. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, all right. Number seven. Hey, let builders build. Let builders build? Let builders build. That's also bullshit. That's what I'm, you know, if there's one thing people know about me, it's they know that, they know that I want to let builders build. If there's one thing that I want in life, it's that builders build. But here, here's why that's a fucking shitty bullshit statement. What if the builder sucks? Let, Do you wanna... build, let, it, let the builder build. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much bullshit in there. Number okay, eight, make, make magic. <laughs> that is the definition of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> What's the next? What's the All next right. one? Number nine. And uh, this, is a, this is a brain twister. Okay. Meritocracy and toe stepping. Oh my god, dude! Uh, link those ideas in your mind. No, Meritocracy link- and toe stepping. How do those? How do those? Part, why are those part of the same number? He seems to understand exactly everything that we object to in our show. Yeah. Well. Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. I definitely hate both of those two, but I don't understand why they make a single rule like it's both the idea that the best man wins and that in order for the best man to win he needs to fuck over the people around him but then the best man is not winning like so it's like right. uh the the cream should rise to the top but also cheating is okay so like right exactly if but I, which makes it because that means that it's a it's yeah they're contradictory but it justifies cheaters as thinking that they're achievers. I'm starting to think that 
uh, Travis Kalanick might not understand what a meritocracy is. <laughs> I think Number he does. ten. I think it's actually maybe the deepest idea that he's yeah he's put forth. That actually, yet. yeah. I mean, like you know, yeah, you're right. Practically speaking, that is what it is. Uh, number ten, optimistic leadership. You know, and that's good. Uh, I'll just say basic. Yeah, that is very basic, and so is the. The, it's going to get good. The last three are the best ones. And uh, we're on the last. This is the fourth to last. So uh, also extremely basic Princip- <laughs> prin- principled <laughs> confrontation. The, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Number 12. <laughs> super, super pumped. Super pumped. Number 12 is 12th principle of his business philosophy is super pumped. Now, you're fucking with my head because I thought that was <laughs> I thought that was you in preparation nope. to say it. No. That's not a principle. That's part <laughs> Oh, uh, I think Travis Kalanick would disagree with you, Joe. <laughs> wow, man. Okay. That that's interesting. Number 13 is my favorite and it is I don't even uh, this is so what I want what I said at the very beginning is that my objective here was to take you on a journey through Travis Kalanick's mindset. And this is it in a nutshell to me. Number 13, philosophy principles of business knowledge. Champions mindset slash winning. <laughs> okay. Wow. <laughs> I'm calling B. TB big time bullshit. You need to have a champion's mindset and um and hashtag winning because Charlie Sheen said so. And then the last one, we're down to the last one, number 14, and it actually is very sweet. Joe. Yep. Be yourself. Well, we round out on a very basic note. Just be yourself. That's a second grade level. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Yeah. Just be yourself. That's cool. I mean, you know, I don't know. The reason that the idea of meritocracy is so funny is that these are the good people who are ruling the world. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, really? Yeah. That's, that's, that's where we're at. That's the leading edge. I mean, it's a, it's a, that rule in itself, meritocracy and toe stepping, is uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's a sort of psychological description of sociopathy, right? Which is right. that yeah. uh, there are no rules in anything, right? There is only sort of like bare scraping to to get ahead of of uh, of anyone else, right? Like that. What meritocracy actually means is doing anything that you can and uh, not. Obeying being able to of... being able to write the rules in the aftermath and say what right was. <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> right right yeah. yeah yeah that's interesting man that was that I liked your way into that segment a lot so do we need to uh, give this guy a rating I mean yeah so I I thought a little bit about this um, the thing about Travis Kalanick is he's not actually that rich uh, uh, compared to the other people on our list. He only has about $3 billion. Um, And 
that gives him limited power, right? Like the the people who have more capital uh, at their fingertips are people who I generally worry more about. Yeah, um, yeah. However, yep, yep. after digging into Travis Kalanick's mindset, I feel like I have to say that if he did have more capital, he would do a ton of damage. And so I got to give him a high number. And... I think uh, seven. I'll go with seven. All right. uh, Time to spin the wheel again, as we do at the end of every show and pick two billionaires to cover next time. Uh, Joe. All right, let's let's do it. Let's see who we're going to spin be that with. wheel for us. All right, here we go. All right, and the first winner is number one forty-seven, and that is number one forty-seven on our list. Leonard Stern, eighty-one huh. years old. In the business of real estate. This is a prime window for billionaires between 77 and 82. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of billionaires in that window. Yes. Uh, they love being old. That's one of billionaires' favorite things. All right. Let's spin that wheel again. And our second one today is Mort Zuckerman. Mortimer Zuckerman, also a real estate uh, guy and media mogul. Um, You may have heard the name Mort Zuckerman before. Is Uh, he real estate first or media mogul first? uh, Real estate first. Uh, So we have two real estates. We have a real estate episode next episode? Uh, Yeah, a real estate episode, among other things. Uh, Mort Zuckerman, also publisher, um, U.S. News and World Report. We'll we'll save that stuff for next time. Uh, we will. Uh, well, actually, we got to pick who uh, who gets who. What do you want? You want uh, Zuckerman or the other person whose name I I already forget. Uh, I'll take Zuckerman. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, the other person was Leonard Stern, R- significantly richer than Zuckerman. I don't know who. I've never heard Leonard Stern before, so we'll see if there's uh, any info on him. All right. Uh, well, let's see how it goes. All right. That sounds good. Well, thanks, thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Tell your friends. Tell your parents um, and uh, and your significant others. And uh, tell your teachers. Your teachers yeah. are uh, looking for good and podcasts. Your, and your students. And your students. And maybe your clergy, your clergy person. <laughs> uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. All thanks right. again. Thanks. Bye.